the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Earlier today, I was driving into the studio, and my check oil light flickered red. Mm-mm. Came on. And it didn't stay on. It flickered off on, off on, off on. Yeah. But isn't it shocking how a little light can upend the internal aspect of who you are. Exactly. Is that weird? Yes. I mean, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no. So it went off, and then when I got here, I shut the car off, and I thought, I'm going to sit here for a few seconds, and then I'll turn it back on, and it did the same thing. It flickered. So I got out, checked the oil. The oil seemed fine. I know I'm due for an oil change, but all that to say, like now, hours after the fact, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the ride home, thinking... There's that oil light again. Uh-huh. And what Wonder- is that going to be? Right. Exactly. That was like the other night, John. I thought I was getting a kidney stone. <laughs> Which is that pain. But you've in, been there. You've done that. I have that. been there. I have been there before. And that pain in the uh, in the right side of my back is reminiscent. Mm-hmm. and Or was reminiscent. And all of a sudden, it was like the check engine light. Right. Oh, my gosh. What is this? Mm-hmm. Fortunately, and then I was thinking of all the things like I haven't been drinking enough water. I haven't been, you know what I mean? Like, anyway, right? It apparently was just a flicker because I'm good now. It's the Hello Darkness, my old friend edition <laughs> of the ride home. Welcome. It's a sunny day. It I is. Mean, despite it's a beautiful that day. Initial anxiety. We are happy that you're with us. We've got an excellent two hours for you. We sure do. Coming up in our second hour. Um, why? This is an article in, in today's Washington Post. Fascinating. Why reviving a 2,600-year-old spiritual practice made my life better. Hmm. Now, this is not written from a spiritual perspective, like for, as on behalf of a Christian, John? No. But someone searching for something yeah. and discovering it and going, oh. How have I missed this all this right. time? And of course, as we talk about this, you'll recognize this right away. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later on in the show. Also, how to improve your sense of direction. Now, you have repeatedly said yours stinks. Horrible. Okay. The worst sense of direction. Okay, we'll talk about that. Um, also, in this hour, how silence restores us to ourselves and to Christ. There is nothing about current culture that's silent. Nothing. When you turn everything off, current culture is still shouting at you. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to this. Our guest will have a, had just finished a three-week internship in silence at a monastery. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Also, do you really need to shower every day? And of course, the answer is yes. (laughs) Maybe not. No, maybe not. And we'll talk about the Fern Hollow hearings with the uh, NTSB. All right. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. All right. To our program, John, we better get underway. All right, Chicken Little, the sky is falling. (laughs) Without further ado, the news stories of the day. Here's the top four at four. Don't call me Chicken. This is Wednesday, 21st of February, 2024. Number one, 
Russian authorities announced the arrest of a dual U.S.-Russian citizen in Russia on suspicion of treason for her alleged efforts to raise funds for Ukraine. Also, Russian state media reported that unspecified charges, did you hear this, John, have been filed against Alexei Navalny's younger brother, Oleg, and that he has been added to the country's wanted list. And... A Russian court upheld Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich's detention in Moscow, ensuring he will remain in prison past the one-year anniversary of his arrest on March 30th. And I got one other thing for you. This is all number one. Mm. A Russian defector who turned over a Russian helicopter to Ukraine for cash last summer appears to have been killed. That's all from today's dispatch. Number two. A new poll has revealed that voters are increasingly dissatisfied with the Biden administration's bid to tackle illegal immigration. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, you remember this back in 2022, vowed to start busing migrants to Washington, D.C. so the administration could deal with the problem. And although Biden insists he's on top of it, Republican governors began taking the issue into their own hands, sending troops to Texas last month. Redfield and Wilton Strategies, which conducted the survey on behalf of Newsweek, have been asking voters, this is interesting, the same set of questions at regular intervals and are doing it up until the presidential election. So back in November, 50 percent of people who were polled weren't happy with how the government was handling illegal immigration. But just three months later, it's up to 59 percent. In just three months. And if you're not unhappy, you're not paying attention. Right. Yeah, could be it. Number three, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley vowed that she would not withdraw from the Republican presidential primary race, even if she loses Saturday's primary in her home state of South Carolina, where she's polling significantly behind former President Donald Trump. This is what she said, quote, I am not afraid to say the hard truths out loud. I feel no need to kiss the ring and I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not looking for anything from him. She also repeated her argument that both Trump and Biden are too old to be president. And she ended by saying people have a right for their voices to be heard and they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99 percent of the vote. We don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections and Donald Trump, of all people, should know we don't rig them. So that plays out Super Tuesdays, March 5th. Yes, that is exactly right. And number four, Pittsburgh's, oh, that's from Politico, by the way. Pittsburgh's Fern Hollow Bridge collapsed as a result of sweeping and avoidable failures by the city, state, and federal government, the National Transportation Safety Board said today. Quote, this bridge did not collapse by an act of God. It collapsed because of a lack of maintenance and repair. It is just sad for the city. And that is your top four. Well, the good news that hearing at the NTSB is that uh, their results are on the table. So those lawsuits from those poor people who plummeted when that bridge collapsed, how many people you know went down with the bridge? Seven. Those those lawsuits have crawled forward ever so slowly. A lot of these people, I mean, they were elderly people. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be alive by the time these lawsuits yeah, are, maybe not. are concluded. So. Let's get on with it and protect those poor people and those, I'm sure, life-changing injuries. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about more about the NTSB report as the show goes on. But for now, John, I believe we're up against a break. Yep. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Come back in a few minutes. We're getting underway. The Wednesday edition of The Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk on 101.5 Word FM. That's W-O-R-D.
Eugene Park is back with us, Associate Professor of True North Church in Palo Alto, California, also host of a podcast called Off the Pulpit. Eugene, we haven't talked in a while. Welcome back. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. Good to see you guys. I know it's been a very long time, but yes, good to be back. Very good to have you back, Eugene. So uh, you're joining us today to talk about um, loneliness, and some would say the epidemic of loneliness, that we live in a society now that's been deeply connected, more probably so than any time in the history of the world. We can access any information or each other at the click of a button. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of us, millions and millions and millions around the world, are sitting alone in their office or their living room in the dark, staring at a terminal or watching TV, and have no one or anyone to know or love to connect out with. I mean, it, it truly is an epidemic, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a weird time um, to be alive where, again, you guys are in Pittsburgh. I'm in Anaheim, California at the moment, um, and we can still talk and, and record this, but at the same time, you look at every metric or uh, statistic, I think people feel the most disconnected and, you know, election year is coming up. I'm sure that will even increase with, with everything going on. And uh, there's a great article, if any of your listeners um, want to read, I think it's called The Decline of Hanging Out by Derek Thompson in, in The Atlantic. And that really struck me because his main premise was not just loneliness, but the simple things like going to the movies together, um, just having social interactions with groups is just declined immensely um, to a point where it's affecting the emotional health of our nation. So I always found that alarming. And as a church, I do think there's a, there is a way forward for us to battle this epidemic together. Eugene, your ministry has been in Silicon Valley for a long time, which in many ways seems like that would be the heart of communication, right? That's where that's where all of the creativity is. That's where all of the investment is. And isn't it, isn't it just deeply ironic to think that we're talking about loneliness at the same time? Yeah, I mean, you know, how do I put this in a nice way? I, I don't think Silicon Valley wants to connect you. They, they want you to be addicted to your mm. phone, you know? Um, I think connection is a way that they can do that. Um, but at the end of the day, there, you know, these companies are making apps not to get us more connected, but to make profit. And often what happens is I remember, again, I've been reading a lot of random things recently, but um, let me try and find that quote. But basically, we're just talking about how we've become so addicted to dopamine or just, you know, it's not really connection that we're connecting anymore, but it's the feeling of that. And uh, there was a recent article about saying um, the more we rely on these stimuli, like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, uh, the less pleasure you actually receive. At a certain point, the cycle creates the complete absence of enjoyment mm. in an experience supposedly pursued for pleasure. Hmm. So being all that, being in the Silicon Valley, I will tell you this to your church, you know, sorry, to anyone listening. Um, your phone is a gateway to many things. But it's also a gateway and possibly just to deep isolation at the same time making you feel falsely connected to those around you. Yeah. So, Eugene, hanging out is not going to solve every social problem, right? But it's certainly yeah. certainly a Band-Aid on that because there's something to be said about you know, going to church, of course. You know, here we are. We're t- you know, we are believers and we do go to church regularly. 
the bowling group that you used to belong to or the Rotary Club or, you know, the book club, sitting down and hanging out and having conversations, looking people in the eye that human beings have done for thousands and thousands of years suddenly seems like a bonus or a, a slice of weirdness. And it just has added to the anxiety and the fear and the disconnection that we have towards each other. Yeah, totally agree. And I think um, that is where the church needs to see this time uh, as a time of warning, but also of opportunity. Um, the church is such a unique place. It's it's the one place, I put it best that if you've been part of a church your whole life, um, the biggest thing that you can underestimate is the community that you've received throughout that time. Um, you're actually very privileged. Now, Community is is tough. I'm not saying that it's easy, but um, it, it's it's so much easier than being alone. And I think the church is that space where, again, like you mentioned, the solution isn't just hanging out. But I think one of the, at least as a pastor, especially in Silicon Valley, um, one of the main ideas I've been having for the next couple of years for our church is, I wonder if our main hall at this moment is almost like a nostalgic vision to mm-hmm. if you were growing up in the church, what youth group was, or you're as a student, where you know ultimately you were just hanging out. Um, but we need that at the moment, and the church is such a great place to do that. Oftentimes, you know, we get so uh, nervous about inviting friends, about evangelizing, about trying to persuade people to faith or to Christ. Um, I wonder if we don't even need to be that anxious because. The most powerful witness at the current moment is not persuasion, but community, a connection. That's something that the church naturally has um, and can offer to those that are lonely. Boy, it's so interesting that you say that, Eugene, because later in the program, we're talking about silence. Um, One of our guests did a three-week silent retreat and is going to come on and talk about that. But one of the things that that was in her thought process was going back. And instead of thinking about, you know, what's the latest new app that's going to help me or the latest new, you know, curriculum, curriculum's going to revitalize Sunday school or, you know, whatever it is. Instead, she's thinking like you, what about going back? Now, her practice of going back to a silent, uh, a monastery that observes silence is chronologically a lot further back than what you're talking about, um, about you know, what youth group was like uh, when you were a kid, but it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of rejecting the latest and greatest for things that have, it seems to me, stood the test of time. Is that right? Yeah, no, I I, I liked, I would love to be, you know, uh, discussing with that person. I, I don't think I could ever do that. I think I, my, my soul is too weak, um, but I, I find that fascinating. And to your point, I think we as a church have often been captivated by just modern phenomenon by our sermons have ultimately in a way become Ted talkish because of just what we've seen. But man, I really, and you know, this is a little cheesy, but yeah, like you mentioned, I, even these things like silent retreats or just, you know, basically creating spaces to hang out. I think our call at the current moment is not to keep up with the current, you know, fads or what's working in the culture, but just things that uh, go back to being human, you know, you know, being alone and being silent, being uh, in a space, hanging out with other people without your phone in your face. And I think those are the spaces. I, I don't know if you know a uh, pastor by the name of Pastor Jay Kim. He's out in San Jose, too. Oh, yeah. You introduced um, us to him. 
Yeah, yeah. And his book's all about that, that uh, maybe the call for the Christian is not a digital one, but an analog one in the current moment. And, you know, I, I want to be careful how I say this. I, I think the you know, God's presence is so much stronger in the ordinary spaces of life, if that makes sense. It's it's much easier to be aware of God's presence by yourself and with people. So I love what you mentioned. I, I think it's a call back to just doing things that maybe are nostalgic and seem childish, but maybe that's what we need. Maybe. You know, we uh, we live here in Pittsburgh, and, and, and there are some neighborhoods in, in, the, in Pittsburgh that literally you could take a ruler— and that's how far people's houses are from each other. I mean, they're yeah. like they're like on, literally stacked on top of each other. And, and I and I know that you know in, in some places in this world, right? I mean, in this country, you can buy yourself a lot of loneliness, right? People live in houses that are ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand square feet of space, right? So that you never have to engage with anybody. But mm-hmm. and I think about that. And at the same time, you know, at church on Sunday, and I don't know if you do this at your church, Eugene, where, you know, I go, we're going to take a moment now, and as part of our worship and as part of community, we're going to go and, and greet our neighbor. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, you move out of your pew, and there's conversation. Now, to be honest, it just drives me crazy. <laughs> I, I, I find it's so awkward for me, and I know that I'm yeah. I'm poorer because of that. But, you know, yeah. forced community is one thing. But the idea that we should be together, I know that. I'd prefer to be alone, and I think it's easier, of course, for people to be alone, right? I mean, it's hard to connect. It's hard to reveal yourself. It's hard to show who you are, especially at church. You know, it's just an awkward thing. But I, I know it's necessary as well. So there I am. And I think that's, you know, I'm not alone in this, although I am. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the modern day conundrum, right? We can buy ourselves space. We're forced to engage with each other when we have to. And a lot of us don't have to, right? You can do Amazon and get your groceries delivered and, you know, your everything delivered. But yeah. it, it's the nature of being alive. If we don't share the same physical space and engage it with each other, look each other in the eye, then essentially... We're just ruined as people. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, John. Like, I, I hate talking to new people. And I'm sorry, I don't hate. Um, it's just not my natural disposition. That's the best way to put it, right? Right. Um, and But I will say this. Community is tough. Like, because you're dealing with broken people. And you have to deal with that brokenness yourself. I will say, though, I think isolation is worse. Because now you're dealing with your own brokenness by yourself. Yeah. And you think with Amazon and space and comfort that you are happy, but the more you dig yourself into that hole, um, you just become less of a human being the way God designs you. Like if we carry the image of God, which is very clear in Genesis, um, what that means is the image of God that we see, even in Genesis, is a triune God in relationship, Uh, meaning that at our spiritual DNA, we are made to be in community, that we are made to be social beings. And yeah, look, I know telling this to certain people of your audience, like they're sick of community or the church has hurt them. And I totally understand that. But I will say this, you know, dealing with other people's brokenness is tough, but dealing with your brokenness by yourself is even tougher. Um, And I think that's a biblical call to do so. That's Eugene Park, associate pastor of True North Church in Palo Alto, California, host of the podcast Off the Pulpit. Eugene, terrific to talk again. Thanks for being here. Good to see you guys. You as well. Okay, so loneliness, right? There it is before us. Wow. How many of us are dying of I think loneliness? what he said is is so right. 
it's hard to be with other people, but it's a lot harder to deal with your stuff alone. Take a quick break. Come back. Do you really need to shower every day? That, maybe that's part of loneliness. <laughs> Stick around. It's the Ride Home, Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. If you feel the need to shower daily, you are certainly not alone. This is from today's New York Times. In one 2021 survey of more than 5,700 U.S. adults, 60%, more than 60% of the respondents said that they shower at least once each day. Mm -hmm. Yet, dermatologists say that they, uh, many people do not need and may not want to shower this frequently. Mm -hmm. Now, you yourself, you shower every day. Yes, I do. It doesn't seem, something seems profoundly off when I don't shower every day. Even on the weekends? Even on the weekends. Like you're going to hang out at, and sit on the couch all day? Absolutely. I'm not doing that. Like Sebastian Maniscalco says, got to polish it up. I mean. You're not doing that. If if I'm home, alone. If I'm home alone and I'm yeah. not going anywhere yeah. or just running to the store, I'm not going to shower. Really? But that's the only time. Yeah. Generally, I'm showering, you know, mm-hmm. 90% of the time. Right. Now, of course, I would say that this is a new and a cultural phenomenon here in the States. Mm-hmm. We know this to be true. Most people in, you know, where? Name it. Any other place right. that's non-Western not, and developed. Not U.S., basically. Right. They don't shower every day. No, they don't. Right? I mean, do you think you smell? Yes. Really? Yes. And maybe I don't, but I feel like I do, which in my mind is the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I often think that, you know, it's a... <clears throat> The shower day thing yeah. is just a moneymaker. <laughs> that the shampoo what? companies and the soap companies and all that thing. But they've convinced us that yes, we need yes, to shower every right, day. Yeah, like the, Get out of here. the ivory soap people back in the 1920s and 1930s, they were like, and they enforced cleanliness on us. And I, I think. And so now at this point, you're, you've. You've had it. You're not taking it anymore, and you're going to rebel. No, I, I, I'm still showering, <laughs> but I, I do believe it's a bit of a scam. Yeah, okay. It's a bit of a scam. Dr. Joyce Park, a dermatologist who's quoted in the New York Times piece, says, there's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to washing skin and hair. Mm-hmm. The ideal frequency depends on who you are, right? She does say that showering too frequently can dry out your skin, worsening redness, itchiness, flaking, triggering eczema flares, mm. but... If you work out, exercise regularly, you have to shower. Yeah, she I get says it. that. Sure, if you have oily hair, she says you'll want to shower. If you have dandruff, you'll want to shower every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but many others, she does say, may be better off showering less frequently. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, I remember as a kid, he used to probably say, I'm not taking a, a shower or a bath because I don't want to lose my hair. <laughs> so that was going to ex- exacerbate right, that he the thought hair loss. showering or okay. bathing you know increase you know decrease the chance that, that you would keep all your hair right uh-huh. and maybe there's something to be said about that that you have like a dry scalp so men go bald because of that that's a lie I'm just, that's may, a I, total old wise I don't know. tale there's no way that could possibly be the case I'm just saying but, or I would have I would have no hair <laughs> Well, women are different than men you think yes yeah they are different right uh, experts or men take remi- uh, recommend Taking showers instead of baths, um, which I think we've heard about for a while. Plus, the idea of a bath, as comforting it as it is, is very gross. Mm-hmm. Now, you've never lived with boys. No, I never have. Whew. I mean, there was a period where our kids were like, 
burning off hormones. Oh, did it smell? Oh, to- my gosh. I mean, you know, and I'd say, hey, hey, you got... And we'd be like, you know, we'd buy like heavy duty soap and they'd yeah. be like, I'm, t- I'm taking, I'm trying. And it was, there's nothing worse than bad BO. No. Oh my gosh. Right? That is so, that is so, so true. I remember I worked um, in my early twenties in a building with a lot of um, people who, who were not showers uh-huh. from far away. You get on the elevator. Holy smokes. But people, you know, who who live like this, if you live in a society where you don't shower, no one seems to mind. It's not it's not Yeah, except I mind when I go there. That's yeah, the they're, problem. They're not doing it for you. I know they're not doing it for me, but I right? but you know that when you travel, like when I was in Western Europe, I was like, wow, people, work with me here. Like let's take some let's take some showers. But the cultural but it doesn't bother anybody else. And how about how about women in sh- in shaving and and Oh. Isn't that a shock when That's you a, travel? Well, it's a weird thing that we've done, I yes, think. Yes, I guess. Right? We're so I guess, like, but now I don't e- want to go back. I don't want to see some hairy woman all over the subway. And I, mean, I, 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 I know they're not doing it for me. No. I'm not trying to be, quote, one of those Americans, but I am trying to be honest about how I look at it. But maybe that's the point, that, that we are those Americans and we expect everybody else to, you know, I take up our norms. Uh, well, I mean, there is something about, yeah, how Americans do that. Right. Yeah. But let's just be glad. Like when we work together, we're talking about the importance of of recognizing loneliness and getting out of where you are and being in community. <laughs> let's just come into community clean. Good let's hygiene. Let's just all agree. I guess. But I do believe that for most people... You don't need to shower seven days a week. Yeah, I really, and truly, I, and truly I feel believe like that. For most people, it's just better emotionally if you do. A few years ago, uh, I was in particular turmoil in, in my life. And uh, at the same time, uh, I was reading uh, Thomas Merton. I had done a deep dive. A mm-hmm. friend recommended, hey, read some Thomas Merton. So I decided to drive to Gethsemane, um, the monastery where Thomas Merton lived for many years, and engaged in a, um, a seven-day silent retreat. And, of course, before that silent retreat, I, I had prepared uh, spiritually, emotionally, I would say, and then walked into those seven days. It's now, wait. Of- now, let me just say, you're, you're walking into those seven days mm-hmm. from your job as a talk show host. The good thing was, though, it's a long drive from Pittsburgh to Kentucky. And I, you know how I am. When I drive, I don't listen to the radio. I don't, I don't listen that. to music. So I, draw, I drove for many, many hours in silence. And I was thrilled to arrive at, the, at, the, at Gethsemane and engage in this. And I'm telling you, this is not exaggeration or hyperbole. Silence is life-changing. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, it looks like our next guest feels the same way, John. Happy to have Ariana Petrosky back with us, Senior Manager of Partnerships and Projects. She's written a uh, really thought-provoking piece at Combat Magazine called The Silent Revival. Ariana, welcome in. Hi. Thank you so much for having me join. So, Ariana, your piece and comment, uh, you didn't do one week or two weeks, you did an apprenticeship for three weeks in a silent retreat. I mean, that's a long time to be silent. It is a very long time. And actually, the the monastery I stayed at in Switzerland, it's called the Community of Grand Champ. 
they require uh, guests or volunteers, I should say, they require volunteers to stay at minimum three weeks because it takes, they believe, time to fully arrive into the silence, whereas guests can come for just a few days um, or as long as they'd want. But as a volunteer, we are really embedded into the life of community there. They they want you to have that full experience um, of three weeks. Hmm. Now, it was interesting reading your piece um, how the Catholic tradition is what is most keenly associated with uh, monastic work. But you went into this particularly looking for a Protestant connection or a Protestant, perhaps a, a Protestant history or continuation of, uh, of commitment to monasticism or silence. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I the reason why I stumbled across Grand Champ was because I had started reading the Collect for the Unity of the Church in the Book of Common Prayer. I, I attend an Anglican church, and I I was struck by this this little prayer, uh, also because it's just provocative, um, and I had never heard of uh, the prayer of the Unity of the Church, or was kind of like, do people pray about this or think about it or work towards it? Um, and that's how I came across not only Grand Champ, but a whole kind of movement of monasteries that were created around World War II with the their vocation as the unity of the church and reconciliation. So working to these spaces of hospitality for a, a continent that had been torn apart by war. And a lot of them were distinctly Protestant um, some of them were uh, combining Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox um, believers together. There, there's kind of a variety of combinations scattered across. Um, but the 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 monastery I stayed at in Grand Champ was most uh, just Protestant um, sisters from the kind of the spectrum of Protestantism, coming from um, countries mostly in Europe. But they have a sister who's from Africa and a sister from Asia. So they, they're really diverse in their Protestant beliefs as well as their kind of cultural backgrounds. So, Ariana, from my perspective, when I arrived at um, Gethsemane, uh, excited to be there. And I arrived just as lunch was underway. So I was introduced um, to the abbot and, and went into a, a lunch line. And then, you know, you just it's hard to sort of strip away cultural norms. I took my food, sat down, and as I did... <laughs> I said hello out loud to people around me. <laughs> sure. And then when I did that, I, in my embarrassment, I laughed out loud. And then the room erupted in laughter as well, which was a good sign for me that even though you are entering into a, a silent phase for days or weeks, there is still, um, it's not as uh, dour. There's a, uh, there's a joyfulness in some ways. C can you talk mm -hmm. about that, about your experience? Maybe, you know, my experience, and it's just as short as it was, totally different from your experience. But but go into those three weeks and, you know, the things that you experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I love that you bring up the meal time because I, I find that that's the time when it feels most awkward to be silent. Yeah. It's so contrary <laughs> it's to... So weird. We share meals, and the, I mean, even the purpose of a meal shared with a stranger or somebody you know is to get to know somebody more deeply. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really was surprised by how well or how intimate I would say the silence is when it's shared with other people. I, 
formed a friendship with another woman who was also on retreat. Uh, and, you know, we didn't exchange a lot of words <laughs> than exchanging kind of our email address at the end of the, the stay. And, um, and it's, it's, it's really quite, it's, it's such a, uh, unexpected surprise to silence that you can feel like, you know, somebody, mm. even when you're not sharing words. Um, but I would say for three weeks, um, I, as my article mentions, I I think the the initial entrance into silence can feel like laborious. It feels like it takes effort to enter into. I think because we're so distracted and so used to consuming information, news articles, music, TV shows, it requires it feels like a strain to all of a sudden strip ourselves of those things. Um, and I was so exhausted. I was so tired and I found myself napping and I thought it was just because I was traveling and came and, you know, I had some other things in my life that felt heavy. Um, but the sisters told me, no, like this is a normal part of entering into a silent retreat is that you, um, and you feel all your emotions for the first time and there's a, a, a tiredness. Um, and so about, it took probably a week and a half or so, um, before the silence kind of flipped. So it went from kind of being very tired, feeling the, feeling all my feelings to all of a sudden the more generative, creative, um, joyous side of silence where you just feel like you're being filled up and overflowing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I don't know for other people as they, if they, when they've done longer retreats, if, if that's kind of like a normal timeline of about a week and a half, um, before that kind of more generative side gets, um, appears, but, but that was definitely my experience. I mean, I love it so much. Talk I, about the sleeping part. For me, and again, you know, our experiences are similar, but I mean, I was only there for one. You were doing three. But when I got there, I did the same thing. I was so exhausted, and I was in like an old wing of the of the monastery, way up high in the third floor. And I was looking through my phone the other day, uh, uh, listening to um, to uh, voicemails. And I, I have of just, I don't know why I did this, I, I recorded the silence that was around me because it mm. became so dear to me. Mm. And all you heard were, for me, there was rain and there was church bells. And that mm. was it. And I, I, I want you get so hungry for this. I, you know, it's been a few years. I, I like to go back to that again. And I kind of mourn for all of us that we don't engage w- with silence on a regular basis in our lives because it, it is life changing. Yes. Yeah, I, it's profoundly life-changing. Um, I, in my piece, I write about that silence is an opportunity for us to be restored to ourself. Um, you are able to identify, kind of take stock of your internal life. Uh, it's, I know in my, I know in my day-to-day, uh, work that, I often will scroll on my phone or read news articles as a way to escape or distract myself. Um, and, and going into silence is a way to to not escape and to instead 
encounter myself more truly and then ultimately encounter God and to make space to hear God. Um, I, I, there's very, there's a lot of quotes about prayer and silence being about listening rather than speaking to God. Um, but, and making that space for God to, to meet you there. Um, so I think there's, there's something really profound that's happening to the individual when silence and that space is carved out. And then there's something different, a different element doing silence in community with other people that is it's there's it it makes your burdens feel more shared um knowing it's kind of the way that i described it is it's like it kind of feels like we're all holding the silence together like it's like this communal act mm. of creating a space for one another to be with god as well as yourself um there's this kind of level of care and nurturing um there's there's something like really profound about the simple acts and when you're doing silence in community so like when you're at the table passing the salt like you have to be more attuned to other people's needs and like making that awkward eye contact or like pointing <laughs> at the salt um so those things become more magnified um the like the really simple mundane things it's it's, it's very beautiful i mean to me i mean just like you know right now this moment in regular life, this is terrifying. Mm. It is scary. I I just led a silent retreat, co-facilitated one, and I did a document for the women who are coming to just kind of prepare them. And I, I state in it, like, you are probably scared. It's intimidating. It's, it's really, I think why I, I called it a holy terror why why there's this holy terror is because we're making we're encountering god um and we're encountering god in a way that feels really vulnerable because we don't can't rely on our typical distractions and and even one girl had asked me before arriving like can i listen to worship music and i'm like nope just silence like not even worship music um i and there I think the there's a death-like aspect to silence um, that I I've, that I write about in my article, um, and I think as a Christian that fits with this call to die to self, mm-hmm. uh, and it reorders ourselves that we're no longer at the center of things, or no longer the most important thing, or our work is no longer the most important, our to-do lists. Um, we don't have to respond to a text right away. Um, but to lay claim that Christ and God and making space for God is actually what is most important. And so it's it's a really scary thing to enter into, um, which is why it's nice to do it in community because you're doing it together. So last question for you, because our time is short. Um, you are now no longer silent. So what's been the long-term effect? Yeah, I I definitely have incorporated silence um, in my daily, weekly, and then maybe two or three times a year rhythm. So on Sundays, most Sundays, not every Sunday, um, but most Sundays I go to church and then I spend the rest of the day in silence and try to not be on any sort of technology. Mm. So I go 
a really long walk. I pray. I read a lot. I, ca- I catch up on all my my fiction reading that I don't get to do there during the week sometimes. Um, I journal. I do some sort of creative activity like knitting or crocheting. And I've noticed, and part of the reason why I did that is because I used to get Sunday scaries really bad of the fear of Monday looming and the, the to-do list piling up. Um, and so I've, I've noticed that doing this Sunday practice helps with the Sunday scaries first and foremost. Um, but it also re-energizes me for the, the work week in a way that, um, uh, that I haven't been able to maintain in other patterns or rhythms. Um, and then I weekly, I, I start my morning in silence, um, probably at least an hour, um, reading prayer Bible, um, and trying to not go straight to my technology first in that first hour of the morning. And then I, I've done two or three silent retreats a year, sometimes by myself, sometimes with others. And, those moments, I think, are crucial, um, especially because I live in Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. is exhausting. Uh, and and I found that the only way that I can, like, truly recharge and truly reset is by leaving the city and entering into a silent retreat for at least um, – I usually do, like, show up on a Friday night, enter into the silence, spend all day Saturday, and then leave Sunday morning or afternoon. So it's, it's a good chunk of time. Um, but that's the reset is substantial and needed. Mm -hmm. Well, Ariana, thank you. I mean, it's a a necessary conversation and it's an excellent article. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. Pleasure's been ours. Ariana Petrowski in comment magazine, her article, silent revival, how silence restores us to ourselves and to Christ. So in our, our last conversation with Ariana Petrosky, the idea of silence, of course, uh, so deeply embedded in us. I mean, you think about silent night, holy night. What was the world like before there was the phonograph or radio? People more often than not, they were surrounded by silence, mm-hmm. right? You had to work to create volume in your life. The church in many ways, the modern church especially, we're complicit in the anti-silence movement. Yeah, for sure. Because church is loud. Yeah, there are very few churches that have any silent po- points time. of silence. Yeah, at all. I mean, seriously, w- what I was saying with Ariana, that this is what's terrifying. When we sit in silence... Mm-hmm. It forces us to confront many things about ourselves, which, of course, we as people, modern people especially, we do not want to engage with. That's why our phones are always before us. Right. I think she said an interesting thing about, you know, I've never done a silent retreat, but did you feel also like you were, like there were a group of people who were doing something together, even if you weren't talking about it? Oh, undoubtedly. Okay. That's interesting. There I've was never a community of together. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like it seems like thing. it'd be a really solitary thing, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. If you can do it, it's recommended.
Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. It's another beautiful day here across western Pennsylvania. Uh, It's hard to say, but you just kind of get used to the sunshine, don't you? It's so lovely out there. I would like to get used Mm -hmm. to the sunshine. It's lovely. This is two days in a row. Yeah. Um, You know, we are surrounded by... uh, by so many stories that have oh, such heartbreak. Yeah. You, you, it, you, I find myself reading deeply and then fleeing from what I'm reading. But some things you have to take note of. I, I read the story, and this is a sad story. So if you don't want to hear a sad story, then maybe this is not the, the moment you should join us. But there's a story in today's paper, the New York Times, about a little baby girl who was found dead in a trash bin in a woman's bathroom at the Phoenix airport in October of 2005. Well, just yesterday, her mother was arrested after the fact, of course. How many years since 2005? 18 years after the discovery at Terminal 4 of the Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport, authorities announced at a news conference that they had arrested and identified the baby's mother, a 51-year-old woman from Washington State, that she would be charged with murder, first-degree murder, in the child's death. Now, the father, apparently knew nothing of this, did not know that the woman he was with was pregnant. He will not be charged. The baby was wrapped in a a plastic bag from a Marriott hotel, which was one of the clues. But using genetic genealogy, an emerging tool in solving cold cases, they looked into this baby's death, and they made a genetic match. And they went to the woman's house, and she was arrested. I mean... Now, I almost guarantee you, ever since that day, she's been waiting to be arrested. Well, with the rise of genetic identification, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt about that, right? They don't say, they don't talk about the woman now. They didn't give out particulars of whether she was married with children right now. Mm -hmm. But 18 years is a long time for waiting to to hear that knock on the door. And when they showed up, I bet she wasn't surprised. She may have been relieved. Yeah. I, that's a terrible story. That's a really terrible story. But, it, but, I guess I'm I'm starting to not understand why that's so different than the abortion culture that we embrace so much. How do you, how well, do you mean? Well, I mean in in several states, um, there's been legislation passed since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Where you can, with a doctor's excuse, have an abortion basically through the entire right up until the moment of birth, Um, and so I'm not sure why we pursue a mom with the fervor of the federal government for 18 years in that instance, and then if it was if the same act was done in a clinical setting, then it it's somehow championed as an essential right for women. I think the sad news is that abortion is the most anti-woman procedure yet invented. And somehow in Western culture, it's been flipped around complete 180 and people talk about it like it's some great liberation. Heroes. I just can't, I can't get it here. And here's the thing. I, I, 
certainly fully understand how many millions, tens of millions of women have been under the thumb of terrible, repressive men. That's a reality. Without a doubt. That's a reality. Forced to do things they never wanted to do with no freedom to speak out or act out or leave or anything like that. So Violence I, and terror. Yes. Violence and terror being completely their choices overrun by powerful men in their life. So I get that. I totally get that. And not in a position to care for themselves. Right. Or their babies. But, but our freedom is not in giving up the thing that makes us special. And that's, I think, the lie that women have bought into. Because the thing that makes women special is the fact that we ha- we can have children, that we can. I mean, it's one of the things that makes women special. It's not the only thing. Forgive me for saying that. But it is one of the amazing things that women can do. And so we've ex- we've seen our struggle against men and our response has been to give up the most beautiful thing we have to offer and experience. And that's where I think that Satan has a hand because the choices that so many women make are under the guise of freedom. But like this woman, are, are the choices will plague them for the rest of their life. And you think, well, women shouldn't have to be plagued by that. You know, shot your abortion. Like, what's the big deal? I, all I can tell you is it is a big deal because I've counseled, I can't tell you how many women who've had abortions and they don't, you don't get over it because I don't think we were ever supposed to get over it. I think it was supposed to matter and we act like it doesn't. And as much as we try to act like it, as much as we try to make it clinical or uh, we try to make it safe, legal, whatever it is, it still matters. And our only way forward as women, I think, is to support one another and to be thankful for the good men that are around us in our lives, our fathers, our husbands, our friends, and to embrace the things that God has given us. And one of them, the greatest one is life. I think all of us know them. And as soon as you see them, you recognize them. There are people who walk among us who are great lights. And to be honest, I don't know what it is, right? Of course, some people know Jesus and they shine his great light. Other people, they're just who they are. And there's something that is, it's not buried. There's nothing artificial. There's no fear, no worry, all those things together. And the people who are bright lights among us, God bless them, because we need more and more about them. We need more and more of them. Well, uh, we're happy to welcome to the show Allison Golden. She's the creator of the online ministry Words Are Children, but she's got a brand new workout called Arise and Shine, How to Be the Light that Ignites Hope in a Dark World. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. I'm very excited to talk with you guys. Allison, I want to hear how the idea for this book started. Um, Talk about uh, night shift in the pediatric unit of a hospital. You're a nurse. What happens? Yeah, so it was the hardest shift that I had ever had. And I had been a night shift nurse for only about a year and a half at the time. And I walked on shift and was hoping to have an amazing, amazing night. And I 
you know, ended up having the hardest shift that um, I had ever experienced as a nurse. And so I was taking care of a patient that, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to be taking care of, of that night. There were other nurses there that had signed up to take care of this patient, but for some reason um, that got missed and I was assigned to be the nurse. And a few hours went into the shift. And unfortunately, when I, I walked in to check on the patient, um, they were attempting to take their life and praise be to the Lord, you know, um, that the patient was okay and everything uh, ended up being safe. The patient was safe and okay. And, but I kind of realized, you know, after that traumatic event, like I was not okay. And Mm -hmm. it just really caused me to question like, Lord, where were you in that situation? Like you say that you're the light of the world and that I'm even the light of the world, but I can't even like see how there could be light in that situation. And so I was just like going down this rabbit trail of questioning the Lord. Right. And so that's where this book started was in my pain was in the questioning and realizing that I wasn't alone and asking those questions that we all like literally, whether we know the Lord or don't, we've all asked the question, God, where are you? Um, in so many different heartbreaking situations in our lives. And so that's where this book um, came from, was in those questions. Excellent. I mean, that's a heck of a story, Allison. So uh, you, you thought about it, you've written about it. So what does it mean to be the light? Yeah, so I felt the Lord really inviting me into this time of studying the word light in the Bible. Um, and I he was so kind to show me so many different things and mainly around this initial situation that I had in my life that kind of sparked this, like leaning into the Lord, like, okay, I had this choice to lean into the Lord or to lean away. And, um, thank goodness I did lean in. And so I felt the Lord being like, I want to show you, um, where I was in that situation. And he reminded me that, you know, I am in the Lord now filled with the Holy spirit and a new creation and in the Lord. And so, I have the exact light of Jesus within me. And that's where the light was in that situation was actually Mm. Jesus working in and through me. And not that I was actually like, oh, I'm aware of being a light in this situation right now. It was more of like, oh, the Lord was working in and through me. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Mm. And so um, that's kind of what I realized about that situation. And So not only in heartbreaking situations and traumatic situations, but in every area of our lives, we get to walk confidently in the fact that as believers in Jesus, we carry the exact light of Christ. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. And then later on in the the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is the light of the world, but we are also the light of the world. And so we get to walk confidently in the fact that we carry his light, even in the darkest of situations where we question, is there even light here? And we can be confident like, oh, yeah, there is light here. And it's Jesus at work in me. So I think in the the moment uh, that can be hard to remember. But you talked about how afterward, after your experience uh, on the night shift, that you realized you weren't okay. So oftentimes, it's not just in the moment. It's dealing with it over time. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it totally is. It's um, a constant, you know, seeking the Lord and saying, like, this is what this situation made me feel. This is what I'm questioning. And and just knowing that he's not afraid of our questions. In fact, he, like, loves when we ask him questions because 
we're still even just in conversation with him when we're asking hard questions. And so it's just knowing that he's never rushing us to get to a certain place on where we do feel this like crazy confidence in him, but rather he just meets us each where we're at and at the same time wants to reveal himself to us and wants to show us where he's at and how he's at work in each of our lives. Allison Golden is with us. Her brand new work is called Arise and Shine, How to Be the Light that Ignites Hope in a Dark World. So, Allison, you walking into that hospital room at that specific time, I mean, (laughs) you saved somebody's life, essentially. They were on their way out committing in the act of committing suicide. But at the same time, I'm sure, you know, you you had to think, well, God was using me there. So... uh, if that person had succeeded, if your timing had been off, if God's timing had been off, right, you, you would have had doubt. And, you know, of course, all of us have doubt about what, you know, God places us in the world and our and our deep insecurities about that. So what was the, what was it like for you to, to work through that? God, you placed me here at this particular time, but I could have missed it as well. Mm, yeah. You know, it's it's really hard when you begin to, you know, ask those questions of like, oh, what if it would have been, you know, one minute later and um, so I personally, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to trust and be thankful that, wow, like the Lord really was orchestrating time in that, in that situation that I was in. And he truly was like directing my steps in perfect timing for the sake of somebody else's life. And um, he does that so many times for other people as well. And then, you know, the times when, when that doesn't happen, you know, I think we just have to sit in those questions with the Lord and say, Lord, um, like I, I bring this situation to you and I don't understand why this happened. So like, I, I need your comfort right now. I'm desperate for your comfort in this situation over my life. And, um, you know, we're never going to have all of the answers on, on this side of heaven and we're not going to always understand everything. And that's really hard to come to terms with sometimes. And it's so much easier said than done we do have to, you know, take comfort in the verse to trust in the Lord and lean not on our own understanding and, and know that, um, you know, we're not called to understand, but we're called to trust. And so it's, it's walking in that trust with the Lord and saying, I have this mustard seed size faith right now, and I'm choosing to have this tiny little faith in you, Lord. And so with this faith, I ask that you comfort me. I ask that you give me peace. I ask that you direct me and show me where you want me to go with you and how you're leading me in my life in these hard situations that may be in front of me. I love it. Allison Golden is the creator of the online ministry Words Are Golden, where she champions women and their faith. She's a pediatric nurse, and her brand new book is called Arise and Shine, How to Be Light That Ignites Hope in a Dark World. Allison, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, truly, the pleasure is ours. That's an amazing story. We'll take a quick break, come back. We're underway. It's the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk here on Word FM. Does this make sense? Yeah, does what make sense? Store-bought pierogies. Now, we live in a community that embraces the pierogi. Yeah. And you can just buy the general, you know, there are several brands of them. Mrs. T's. Yeah, which, yeah. Does that make sense, John? Well, I'm Irish. Sure. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, what the heck, right? Mm Mm-hmm. 
If you want a pierogi, go to the frozen food section. Right. Pop it in. I feel pretty good about it. Okay. Makes, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mind a frozen pierogi. Okay. Yeah, it makes, makes perfect sense to me. I want to say... And I think I'll surprise you. I think it does make sense. Oh, I was expecting some huge backlash. No, no, no. I think it does make sense because sometimes you're in a pierogi pinch. Pierogi pinch. You want a pierogi? Yeah. Might be late at night. (laughs) You might be Irish. (laughs) (laughs) There could be other issues which are holding you back. You're in a pierogi pinch. Yeah, okay. I think it's tasty. And there it is. However. Here it comes. Here it comes. When you're not in a pinch. Yeah, of course. Would you please no, I get, get yourself to someone who makes their own pierogi? Yeah, I get Would it. you just do that? Would right. you make a promise to yourself and your kin okay. that you're going to reach out to a Polish Catholic church, sure. a Ukrainian Catholic church, nice someone restaurant. who's Slovak next to you, a nice restaurant, and you are going to get the real thing? That's good. Because you owe it to humanity to support the real thing. All right. I mean, both make sense, but for goodness sake. Do the right thing. All right, does this make sense? Your pet's sleeping with you. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, I uh, you're asking me that question, I would assume. I am. That's how the game works. Uh, it makes all the sense in the world. Wrong. I, <laughs> 100% wrong. I sleep, uh, I sleep with my cat Ugh. on my chest, uh, and he's about 20 pounds, and I love it. So wrong. I love it so much. I do not want that. That really? makes no sense. Well, I don't what, understand. So, you're I don't like it. Ca- you're a cat lover. You're a like dog it. lover. What's the problem? Because sleep is sacred. They want to be with you. I don't want them They're near your friends. me. I don't want that fur. I don't want the purring. I don't want the dog up there. They're dirty. I don't want them near me when I'm sleeping. If I could put yellow police tape around my bed, I would. I'm telling you, stay away. I love you. I love you, little pets. You're sweet, but not in those eight precious hours. I can't believe that about you. Nope. You have gone to such a a degree to care for your animals over the years. Of course, I love them. And you don't even want to take a little nap Mm -mm. with a. I don't. Stay away. Pets on the bed make no sense to me at all. Last night, my cat had his little paw in my cheek. Oh, boy. Reading through uh, secular media, newspapers, magazines, you know, you, you name it, people's blogs, all that whole thing. It's often surprising, although I know it shouldn't be, to read about people discovering things about faith, longstanding practices that have been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And all of a sudden somebody writes about this and goes, holy smokes, I, I, need, I, I discovered this thing and I want to share it with you. Mm-hmm. Such is a case where there's an article um, in today's uh, Washington Post um, about, here's the headline, why, why reviving a 2,600-year-old spiritual practice made my life better and make sense? And I was like, oh, okay, I saw that headline. So reading into the article, and quickly you discover what they're talking about, essentially, what the author is talking about is Sabbath. Hmm. That he says that every Friday evening, he shuts off his laptop, he turns his phone off, and he, he takes a Sabbath. So then it's a really interesting long article. But he goes into what is a day of rest. And, of course, he talks about you know the modern weekend, which was established 
really at the beginning of the machine age, when people were working seven days a week, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, you were just really crushing people's lives. You were just working people to death. Mm -hmm. Henry Ford, I think, is generally regarded as one of the first people who said, well, I'll give my workers one day a week off, which was at the time considered revolutionary in that time, even though, the heck, there was a lot more Christians in that time frame than there are now. But what it's like to have that day off. And he goes then after he describes what the modern work week was. And then he goes back to 2,600 years ago. And he says, the author says, the concept of Sabbath appears in Christianity and in Islam, both of which set aside weekly days for ritual as Buddhist days and Japan's, their, their spiritual life. So he has to lump it all in together. But then he says, the first reference, though, to mandated rest probably appears in the Torah, mm-hmm. which, of course, is 100% correct. And more than 2,600 years old. Yes. Just as an ancillary point. Where ancient Israelites were commanded to cease their toil from Friday evening until Saturday at sunset, a period known as Shabbat, of course, in the Jewish calendar. So then he goes into the... Um, the ancient Israelites, the prohibitions uh, and the assortment of activities that they were not able to do, uh, not able to, you know, to, to eat the, the food and to do anything, essentially, to make sure that, you know, that to even sew a stitch or two was considered an aberration. Uh, the 1951 book, The Sabbath, the, is the great cathedral of Sabbath literature, apparently. Technical civilization is the product of labor, he writes, of man's exhortation of power for the sake of gain. This is from the book of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day on which we learn the art of surpassing civilization. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. And then, of course, he goes into modern world where Pope Francis uh, argues about, about the Sabbath in 2015 and about the natural cycles of what it is to be in a restful area of our lives. But isn't it surprising to think about Sabbath as something new and revolutionary that someone would spend? A, this is a deep read. This this article easily twelve minute read. Wow, a lot of words were spilled on something ancient, which someone who is not a believer, not a not a Christian, not a Jew, maybe a Buddhist, maybe something New Ageish, would say this this practice has changed my life for the better by laying something down and stepping away from the modern world, which is basically a theme of today's show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of stepping away. Yeah, it kind of is, huh? Right? Well, first of all, isn't it, I mean, it's it's wonderful to see people, anyone, when they embrace something that God has directed, because that's where life really is. Yes. It's not like if we... Uh, it's not like the commandments are a restriction or a negative restriction. They're a frame they are, that hold us together. Yes. And they're they're the path to life. Right. Now, the only thing that the uh, commandments have shown us is our sin. Right. Paul talks about that in Romans um, is that we can't do it. And so that's why our salvation is not by keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not also um, that our faith ensures that we ignore them either. But it is that. Salvation is through uh, grace alone. But Jesus himself kept every one of the commandments in a way that was beautiful and not judicial, mm-hmm. right? Not um, 
not showy, but real. And it seems like what that guy's talking about is the same type of thing. It's it's not showy, but it's real. So later on in the article, he goes into how to do nothing. How do you spend your Sabbath? And again, this is not to honor and glorify God. This is just to take a rest. He says that there's no right way to practice a day of rest. Mine is by no means perfect. My to-do list sneaks up on me. I find the gravitational pull of notifications and alerts distracting. So I do need to turn this down. So he says, pick up something you love just for the pleasure of it. If something brings you unalterated joy, no matter how small or silly, this is the time to do it. And most importantly, find a community to share it with. You can join a congregation, the author writes, but even a friend or a spouse can be enough. Keeping a Sabbath at its heart is a communal act. It Mm -hmm. helps to have other people. I couldn't do it without them. Those are accountability tools that help me keep my practice. Yeah. Now, here's where he veers off. Any amount of time can be a Sabbath. Rest is a privilege. Many of us can't set aside an entire day free from the responsibilities of work or family. A weekend at home with your kids is hard to call rest. Even Shabbat moments can help. But carve out as many as you can, brief as they may be, and see where it leads. He says that he's found uh, keeping a day of rest surprisingly difficult to do. But he says it seems to help make everything else possible, including writing a weekly calling column about what to do about overheating our planet. Because huh. he writes... About climate change? Climate change as Sabbath. About by doing nothing. Oh. By not getting in our car. Okay. By not traveling. By that, not turning on appliances. By not using yeah. electricity. The Green Sabbath, this is the, the heart of the article. Yeah. The Green Sabbath is what drew him okay. and kept him into this. Okay. I mean, that's not what would obviously draw me into it. Uh, it would be, you know, a God thing, but I, you know, I would, we Whatever do have works. a, we, but I think it's important to say that's a commonality between sure. him and us is that at least that would be a place for us to start. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, we, we agree on Sabbath. We're just doing it for different reasons. And right. then maybe things could progress from there. Now what's interesting in, in all these articles and these cultural articles is someone will write something and then they often turn, turn on the, um, the comments. Oh boy. Which I love. I mean, because then you get... Well, you love and hate. Well, everybody chimes in. So here's the very first comment. Actually, someone writes, we should bring back blue laws. Mm. The religion part of this is silly, of course. Of course. But recalling the 70s when supermarkets were closed, the mall was closed, when few sit-down restaurants were open, didn't serve booze, more gas stations were closed, people went home and amused themselves in a calm, restive way. And there was no event or meetings on Sunday other than for the churchy set. You were left alone, and it forced you to be efficient during the week and Saturday in prep for Sunday. I mean, people know yeah. what's good for them. Yes, I know, at heart. We all yeah, know that. I know, we all know it. Right? We, all, we all know it. I mean, we the blue laws, are you old enough to remember the blue laws? Yeah, I am. I mean, things really shut down. Yeah. Very few things were open. Yeah. When I was in Germany... Uh, again, not in major cities, so I don't know if this is the case in, uh, like in the capital of Berlin, but yeah. in all the small cities, everything was closed on Sunday. What? Everything. Nothing was open on Sunday. But Germany, look, I like know. all of Europe, right? I know. I mean, like I said, I was only there one time for a couple of weeks, so I'm no authority, mm-hmm. but I, we were all really surprised to see that. I love it. Yeah. 
Another commenter says, do hobbies count? Bird watching, reading, playing with a dog, sewing, painting. Not to excess, but when I sit in my yard, I usually see birds and insects and flowers. I like to talk to my orchids. Does this count as Sabbath? Sure. See, someone doesn't know, right? Right, right. Someone says, uh, what a great column. Amen to all he says. Hmm. So what is that? That we keep chasing after in by not doing it? We know this. I know. I know we know. In our hearts of hearts. I know hearts, we know it. It's but like you know God what? in us. You know what? Our friend Tim Keller said this one time when he was on our show. We were talking about Sabbath. And he said that the that practicing Sabbath is an acknowledgement that our work, whatever it is, will always be incomplete. Mm-hmm. No matter what we do, no matter how smart we are, committed we are, dynamic we are, that our work will always be incomplete. I think that's what we fight against. I think that we keep doing it because we think we have that we're indispensable. Yes. Maybe that our work is so important that it defines us. And so if we were to step away from that, all of a sudden we would feel unimportant or we would feel incomplete, which of course is the truth, but we run away from that. That's just my guess. It's a drug. A friend of mine died recently. And before he died, I'd said, let's get together. He said, I'm too busy. And this were his words. All I do is work from 6A to 6P and beyond. And then he died. Mm. And in a heartbeat, he was gone, gone. And when he passed away, someone else picked up that work. Somebody did that job. I mean, you know, the corporation didn't fall down into ashes. But all the things that he missed, all the times that we could have been together, all the family, the friends, the the enjoyment of life is gone. To what end? Because your workplace made you feel like you were indispensable. And but here's the thing, that's kind of like the dopamine. I think we were talking about with Eugene Park earlier in today's show. Is that dopamine we get from, you know, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling or finding something we want to buy online or whatever it is. Yeah. I think that 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 as much as we complain about, oh, our boss says that I have to be there at 6 a.m. and stay till 6 p.m. We complain about it, but it still confers on us a sense of importance and we like it. We like being that essential. But wait a second. Things have changed. And if you step away, then all of a sudden you're not that essential. Maybe not now. Maybe that's changed. Right? You know, the pandemic and the new generation, you know, as a Listen, proud boomer. I, yeah, for sure. Right? That's what the trend is in America. But I still know so many people. Most of the people I know, most of them are the 6A to 6P group. They really are. Maybe that's because of those are the circles that you and I run in. Well, of but, course. That's our age. But most of – but so, I don't think it's age. Really? Well, it might be age. I don't know. I mean, nose to the grindstone, Nose right? to the grindstone. Uh, I mean, you're like me. I mean, I had a job. My first real job, I mean, and I read, just read about this the other day, was a paper boy when I was 10. And I, ha- I was a paper boy for six years, which meant every day after school, I ran home, and at 3.30, those papers were sitting for me, waiting. Mm. And I folded those 75 papers carried those 75 papers, and then made my way through the neighborhood. That was the work ethic that formed me. 
seven days a week. I did the Sunday paper, which was 125 papers. That work ethic. And they were saying, no paper boys anymore. The work ethic has disappeared. But, you know, you, what you did Mm -hmm. and all the things that – all the jobs we had. Yep. Those are important to the forming of who who you are as a person. Yeah, I'm not saying that work is bad, but work makes a lousy idol like everything else does. But doesn't work feel good? Yes. But, again – it feels great because it fulfills our mandate, the the mandate that God gave us to be co-regents over creation. It feels good, but again, only up to a point. And then we start thinking of ourselves not as co-regents, but as regents <laughs> and as indispensable. And then all of a sudden it you know, goes over that little dotted line and becomes idle. Where we... I-D-O-L, mm-hmm. not I-D-L-E. Where either... Our job becomes godlike, or our fulfilling of that job duty makes us godlike yes. in the eyes right. of the employer, mm-hmm. our families, our whatever. Right. Right. And then we get back to what Tim said, which was Sabbath is an acknowledgement that our work will always, no matter how great it is, no matter how like intensive or all surpassing it is, it will always be incomplete. And so then today in the newspaper, a non-believer writing about an ancient mm-hmm. 2,500-year tradition that they just discovered because they were hungry for rest. And there it is. And the truth of that and the power of what it is to step away, to surrender, but truly only if we give it to God. Many years ago, when our kids were little, uh, every year, of course, we, we would drive to the beach, leave Pittsburgh, and then, you know, go down to the Outer Banks. And my sense of direction uh, is decidedly extremely poor. It okay. just is. I mean, I just, I, it just, and I, I've, come, I've come to grips with it. I, I'm, I'm at peace with this. I married, however, a woman whose sense of direction is off the charts. I mean, just absolutely fabulous. So she knows this about me. And of course, I know this about her. So she's the navigator always. This was before GPS, which to me is the greatest invention in the history of mankind. So we were driving to the beach. Our kids were, you know, in the back seat. They may have been in their, in their car seats. That's how little they, they may have been. And uh, she said, um, after she knew that we were safe, you know, set for an extended period of time, like I wasn't going to go crazy and, you know, veer else. She was like, I'm going to take a nap. You Wake me up if you need me. I said, okay, great. So we're driving. I don't know how long it was, an hour or something like that. Somehow, and I can't remember how I did this, but I got off the highway and was driving and then got off someplace else and got off until literally – Literally, I was on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. I mean, there, wasn't, there weren't even any houses around. It was just a dirt road. <clears throat> so <laughs> at that point, I, I knew it was coming. I, you know, I had to w- wake my wife up and just you know, take my medicine. And I woke her up and I said, honey, <laughs> I'm sorry. Wake up because I'm lost. And she woke up. She's all groggy and stuff. And 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 she said, "What? Oh, you know, hold on, okay." So she looks down the road. Of course, you know there's trees on either side, and there is literally a dirt road before us. And she's like, "Okay," I said. And she looks down the road, and she says to me, 
is that a dog down there? And from the back, my little one of my sons, he said, Mommy, that's not a dog. That's a goat. And that's how far away we were from civilization that I took us from a superhighway onto literally a goat path. My wife, she goes, okay, hold on. She looks up into the sky, and I don't know, looks up in the sky. Okay, there's the sun. And she goes, okay, uh, turn around, make a U-turn here, and let's go down here. And literally, within three minutes, we were back into civilization. Now, my wife grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And so uh, there's an article uh, on the BBC that says how you can improve, shows how to prove, oh. improve your sense of direction. So you can get better at this. Well, I got my GPS now, Kat. Right, okay, so you don't have right? to. Right, so I'm right, fine, right, right, right. really. But in the article, in the thrust of this article, it says, generally, people who live outside of cities, if you live in the country and if you're a woman... Those two things combine really? to make people really? with extraordinary sense of direction. That's interesting. I, that's my wife. What? So they don't say why that is, of course. It's they just go the into it. But, okay. if, you know, there's something that's, you know, do you know there's something which I, I did not know of. Um, it's kind of like a sport. Where, oh, yeah. Like orienteering. That's exactly it. Where the the author of this article says his name's Christine, uh, it's a woman. Sorry, Christina it would be a woman. <laughs> Christina Rowe. She says that when she was growing up, even before she was you know in school, her parents for fun would take her out orienteering. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Describe that. Well, orienteering is just is just a it's a. It's kind of a hobby yeah. of people kind of going out and getting lost, getting lost, and then finding certain coordinates um, such that you know someone who came before you has left something. Yes, and you dig it up, and there it is. So you can better navigate yes. through the morass of the modern yes, world. Yes, you can circumnavigate the globe in you know twelve easy steps. I miss that, and I really to be Isn't honest, that incredible. I don't even care. And here's the weird thing: <laughs> now with GPS. Like my kids, they go somewhere. I'll go, oh, did you go over? Blah, blah, and they're like, I don't know. Oh, because they don't even look. They're I just, just follow going the GPS. To... See, now that, okay, that's that's, that's five steps too far. Right, right. I mean, there's there's something good about following your GPS. Like in the city, I'm good. I right. know where I'm going here sure. in the city of Pittsburgh, which is a crazy sort of weird thing anyway. Right. I feel, uh, I, I always need to know where north is when I'm driving. Oh. I just, there's something about, I just, I always need to know. Yeah. And so I always I always refer to you, things in north, south, east, west. But other than that, I'm certainly a huge favor in favor of the GPS mm-hmm. until okay. you get lost. And right, and then it's GPS's fault. Certainly not mine. <laughs> right, right. right. Okay, listen. Uh, last couple minutes of the show, I have to tell you that the first egg of 2024 was laid at the Hayes Bald Eagle Nest in Pittsburgh. What? Yes, the Audubon Society confirmed the news today in a release. Um, now that there's an egg in the nest, they say that the adult bald eagle will stay on the nest constantly, incubating the egg. The adults will take turns, right? They're never going to leave it unattended. And there's usually a span of two to four days. I'm reading this from cbsnews.com. Uh, a span of two to four days in between laying eggs, according mm-hmm. to the Audubon Society. Now, last year, the Hayes female laid eggs on the February 17th and the 20th. Both eggs hatched and three eagle, three eaglets fledged in the nest. Wait, wait. So one egg had two eaglets? 
No, but the, she uh, laid eggs three days apart. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, that's so she laid one egg on the seventeenth and one on the twentieth. So, so just because they lay an egg doesn't mean that uh, the bird will survive. No, it doesn't. Right. But, uh, sh- but what they're getting at is that there might be another egg laid today, Excellent. or tomorrow, or sometime in the next week. So, if we thought that spring was still far away, spring is here. I think it is. Yeah, truly, when the the, ha- the haze eagle lays that egg, you got It's better than Groundhog Day. Spring. If the animals are laying eggs or giving birth, they know it's going to get warm sooner rather than later. The webcam, so that you can watch the Hayes Bald Eagle Nest, uh, it got some major upgrades this year. Yes, it did. It's now 24-7. It's a high-def camera. Um, so you can pay more attention and see it, see all the details better. And uh, you can watch the live stream on kdka.com. It's way up on the hill there. Now, uh, for years, it was the same pair of eagles, wasn't it? I feel like it's still the same. No, thing. I thought no. one of them died. I think the male died a couple of years back and was replaced. Okay. I, I believe that's true. That sounds harsh how you say that. Well, I And mean, was replaced. That's nature. Is it? Right. Okay. To procreate and to let the species move forward. That's pretty tough. Anyway, that's so cool. So now they're, they're just on that little egg and they're just going to... Yep. I wonder how big it is. I don't know. I really right. don't so know. So as big as your fist, as big as a coffee cup. I mean, I wonder how big it is. Okay, I'll look into it for tomorrow. Right, pretty show. cool. All right, we're done here for today, are we not? We sure are. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us yep. on the uh, Wednesday edition of the Ride Home. Yep, the sun's out. Um, the weather is still fairly nice out there, right? I mean, the temperature is pretty good. It's it's, it's going to be kind of it's going to be kind of dark when we get home. But I'm thinking I might go out for a walk. Please do. It's, yeah. No, no. It, it was like after six. Well, yeah. We, we looked out the window. It was still. But it's t- right now. It's like 52. Just get outside. The Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.